It is so good to see everyone here tonight on a day and even a larger degree on a night that uh, so many things could pull our attention away from being here and gathering together to study God's Word. I take great confidence that each of us here are putting the first things first that really do matter. And it's an encouragement and so glad that you're here. We welcome our guests again. So thankful that you've joined us. As Joseph read for us tonight, this is one of my favorite parables. Short, um, sweet, but to the point. And it is such an encouragement to take time and to reflect on the words of Jesus in this parable. But to better understand it, let's take a step back to the beginning of the chapter. Often get a lot of the focus. The first one being the parable of the sower. Only one of the soils of the four that are described would be truly receptive, receptive to the word that has been sown. If we stop and think about that, we use this parable all the time. But what is God telling his disciples with this parable? 75%, the vast majority of where you're going to sow this seed is not going to take. That is not the message that we hear talked about that Jesus or, or that popular large congregations use to get the crowds. But Jesus told his disciples, three quarters of the soil will not receive your word. Then in verse, the, the middle part, before he goes to the second parable leading to this parable of the mustard seed, he tells why he's even speaking in parables. His disciples actually ask, why are you doing this? They themselves, who were spending time with Jesus, were struggling to understand the parables. And notice what Jesus says in verse 13. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Is this the, the pattern that we're told today to grow the kingdom of God that we should follow? Absolutely not. It's everything but this. Jacob, just a couple weeks ago, talked about a message that is um, very popular of blessings flowing from the physical if you give your heart to God. This is not what we're seeing here from Jesus teaching his disciples. And then, before we get to the mustard seed, we have our third parable in Matthew chapter, second parable, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 13. And that's the parable of the wheat and tares. And what's the message behind this parable? The disciples learned that Satan would be doing his very best to undermine the efforts of the seed sowing. If I'm a disciple of Christ and he is preparing me, is this the message I'm expecting? In some ways, it could be a little discouraging. I would venture to say it's far more discouraging if we weren't told firsthand by God to expect the results. And God does this throughout the entire Bible. He tells us the Christian walk is not about physical prosperity. Actually, 
we will face great trials and temptations. And what does he say? Persecutions to those that follow me. It's not a surprise. We can know when it happens what to expect. This is what Jesus is doing with his disciples. And we need the same message. We absolutely need the same message because would it be discouraging if we were not told this and you're sowing the seed and you didn't know what to expect and you focused on the wrong things? Are we focused on the results? No. What are we focused on? Seed sowing. Are we focused on what happens and who receives and what type of soil they are? Is that left for us to determine when we're sowing the seed? No. And God has told us that the vast majority will reject His authority, will reject His Word. And this then leads us to two different parables. The one we're going to spend most of our time on tonight is the parable of the mustard seed. We will touch on the other one very quickly at the end. But they both carry a different message. Jesus turns his attention to his disciples and he's encouraging them. Because if we go back in time and the disciples that are following Jesus in the turmoil, and we're going to look at that tonight, you may begin to question, are we in this explosive growth of the kingdom of Christ that we were prophesied about or that we heard about? And sometimes we may wonder, are the efforts producing the results that God would be happy with? And the parable of the mustard seed tells us, if we are doing what God has commanded us, it is. And so it's a great encouragement to look at this um, parable, and I hope it will be uh, for you as it has been for me to go back and look over it. So we have three locations that this parable occurs. It occurs in Matthew, which Joseph read for us. It also occurs in Mark, and it occurs in Luke. And we're going to read the other two um, just to look at the three different ways that this is characterized. Mark 4, verses 30 through 32. Then he said, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? Verse 31. It is like a mustard seed, which, is, which when it is shown, sown on the ground, is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up. It becomes greater than all herbs. And shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. And then if you look at Luke chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. Luke chapter 13, 18 and 19, we read. Then he said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air 
nested in its branches. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people that don't take the time to understand what this message, this parable is really saying. In fact, oftentimes, and I've personally had this happen, they use this passage as a contradiction, one of the contradictions in the Bible. So what are they referring to? Well, if you look at this chart, these are some really, really small seeds. Now, there are different varieties of mustard seeds, just like you would expect in gardening. There's lots of varieties of a particular plant. But this is a brown mustard seed. There is a smaller version. It's called the black mustard seed. And supposedly those connoisseurs of mustard seeds understand that the black is a little more potent. It's got a little more kick to it. But this looks smaller than a mustard seed, the wafia fruits. And then the poppy seed, it's smaller. But there's this orchard seed. Now, it is really small. You may think, oh, no, that's, that's a big seed. That's the sheathing around the orchard seed. The seed itself is really, really small. But what, and an orchard plant, just to remind us, we've all seen them. Seems like Kroger's really fond of them these days. Um, you see, when you walk in, they have orchard plants sitting there, and they're decorated all over houses. It's a popular thing these days. We just explored. But it's not the smallest seed. We, we just explored. The mustard seed is not the smallest seed. And when we go back to these verses, let's look. At, it does not appear in Luke. Um, and for some reason, it is not bolding here. Um, but um, if we read in verse 32, which indeed is the least of all seeds, okay? And then in uh, Mark 40 in verse 30, it says um, at the end of verse 31, is smaller than all the seeds on earth. And it's so interesting to me. Sure, I'm going to move this down. It's so interesting to me how many people just go to this fact of, well, the word of God has a contradiction and put their attention and efforts. However, let's take a step back and let's go to Matthew 13, 31, and let's look at a statement. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Let's look at what's between those two statements, which a man took and sowed in his field. Jesus was not bringing attention to the fact that the mustard seed is the smallest seed on the face of earth. But if I'm sowing in a field, what's another term we use today to describe that action? Farming. Now, when I look at the seeds of things that produce something edible, and mustard seed farming has been around for thousands of years, and I look and compare all those seeds with what's produced, what is the smallest seed? A mustard seed is very, very small. And we're going to get to the point that's being made here, but I first want to at least acknowledge that so that if you're ever talking to somebody and they throw it on you like they did for me the first time, I was a little surprised. 
because honestly, I'm not a connoisseur in a mustard seed. I've actually never held a mustard seed or visually seen a mustard seed until this past week, which is reminding me to come back to this passage and look at it for tonight's study. So for kids, you're at least going to see a mustard seed in the palm of my hand. Actually, I can't use my little green pointy thing because you would actually not be able to see it. And because of the blurriness, you're probably not going to see it as well. But this arrow points right above my shadow here to a mustard seed that I held on Tuesday of this week. Well, to help get a maybe a better depiction, I said, well, let's zoom in a little bit more. And maybe some of you can see that. Again, right at the end of the arrow, right above the green dot is a mustard seed, but that's still pretty hard to see. So I zoom in. Apple's now got multiple zoom in levels. So I zoomed in again, didn't move my hand at all with the camera. And that's even a bigger picture. I hope you understand how small that seed is. Do you remember the picture of the orchard I just showed you? How that very small seed in the sheathing becomes a two foot tall plant? Well, I mentioned there's a lot of variety of mustard seeds. Some of them can get to a height of three to four feet. Most of them though, get much, much larger than that. That came from a mustard seed, that tree there. So I'm gonna pull in the two pictures again. Remember that little seed in the very palm of my hand that we barely can see? In, well, you may not even be able to see in this picture. That produces a big tree. And that's going to help us understand what Jesus is talking about. Remember, parables take things that are known, things that are understood and facts of this physical world. And we apply, Jesus implies a spiritual message through that. We looked at that this morning in our Bible class in Galatians with Hagar and Sarah. Very similar principles, although that was an allegory, not a parable, but similar principles. And so a very small seed, it would be hard to imagine if you'd never seen a mustard tree. Confession, I never looked up what a mustard tree looked like. I had no idea. But if I was just, I was holding that seed. I had to go look up what this thing turned into because it's really hard to imagine that that's the product that comes from that little seed. So are we, do we see the, the terminology mustard seed anywhere else in the Bible? And if you're thinking there's probably two locations you're going to go to, and it's going to be around faith. So let's look at those. First is in Matthew 17. And verse 20, Matthew 17 and 20. So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be able to illustrates the same point regarding faith. Luke 17, 6. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, 
you can say to the mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Additionally, and, and this may be um, anecdotal, anecdotally um, a reference. I, I, I'm not going to say here and I'm not going to sit before you here and say that this is a, a um, specific example. But we see Jesus was prophesied to be a tender plant. Um, in Isaiah 53, 2, it says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Fascinating as I'm researching mustard seeds in places they grow. They actually grow in very arid, dry um, environments. And out of dry ground, you don't typically anticipate, you don't expect there to be a small seed to produce a tree such as we just saw. And so, again, I'm not saying that that's an exact connection to the mustard reference, but what we will see is that it does prophesy concerning the prophecy of Jesus' kingdom and what Jesus coming into this earth would produce whether it's in reference to a mustard seed tree plant or not. And if we, as we turn our attention to that, we look at the small beginnings that we see in reference to the kingdom of God. In Isaiah 11:1, 1, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. It's not what you would anticipate. And we're going to see what the Jews anticipated for this Messiah coming to the earth. It wasn't this portion of a branch or a mustard seed. And as we saw in Isaiah 53, 2 through 3, we won't read 2 again, but let's look at verse 3. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted, acquainted with grief. And we hid as if it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Does that describe what the Jews thought the Messiah was going to be? Or did they imagine a reincarnation of some form, shape of David, the conqueror? It was the latter. What did the scriptures prophesy? The mustard seed, the small beginnings. Additionally, we see this comparison of a small beginning, but a big outcome in Daniel chapter 2. We just studied Daniel not that long ago. In, chapter, in verse 35, we read, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together. If you remember, in kids, the, the, the image of kingdoms that was going to be destroyed by this stone. As we continue, and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image did what? It became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Let's jump to verse 44. And in the days of the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall not break in pieces just like the image had, right? And consume all of these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. So this stone 
is going to crush this gradient image of these kingdoms. It will destroy all earthly kingdoms and it will last forever and this will not repeat. There won't be something else that comes in and destroys it. R.C. Trench um, had this description of the beginnings of the um, kingdom of Christ. And I, it does a good job summarizing, and we're going to go look at some of these summaries in Scripture in just a moment, but let's read this together. The Son of Man grew up in a despised province. He did not appear in public until his 13th year, then taught for two or three years in neighboring villages and occasionally at Jerusalem, made a few converts, chiefly among the poor and unlearned, and then falling into the hands of his enemies, died the shameful death of the cross. Such and so slight was the commencement of the universal kingdom of God. Let's observe some facts from scriptures. First, there's a contrast between what the Jews expected and what actually was prophesied was going to happen and actually occurred. In Galatians 4.4, 4, we understand that Jesus was born of a woman. But the Jews had this very different picture of the Messiah. Again, they thought, like David, we're going to bring hurt and pain we're going to get our vengeance against the Romans. That was the expectation. Um, George MacDonald, a, a poet, captured it this way. They were all looking for a king to slay their foes and lift them high. Thou camest a little baby thing that made a woman cry. We then see Jesus was sought after to be killed by Herod. Matthew 2, 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and sent forth and put to death all male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Jesus was despised in, uh, from a despised province. John 1, 46 and Nathanael said to him, can anything come good out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus didn't follow the traditional uh, rabbinical training. John 7, 15. And the Jews marveled, saying, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through he, though he was rich, yet for you, I'm sorry, sorry, John 7, 15. I skipped ahead. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know, know letters, having never studied? Now we get to the next one. Very limited financial resource. If I'm setting up a kingdom, I need financial resources. I need political army. We got to go at this from all the earthly things we see today. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. His family struggled to see the message at the beginning. John, um, sorry, John 7, 
In verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe him. How could a kingdom succeed? But we haven't looked at Jesus' ambassadors. Would they make up for these so-called physical shortcomings? Let's look at a few facts there. They were unlearned and ignorant men. Acts 4, 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, why? Where were these men from? Galilee. That was not the metropolis of Israel. They were fishermen. They were commoners. Just by the way they talked, just like we know when someone comes from the north, they have an accent. I wasn't looking at you, Mark. Um, they have an accent. They knew that these men were where they were from, and there was an expectation of who they would be. They marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. There were also with them some explosive components that Jesus decided to bring together in his disciples and called to follow him. And without the guiding hand of Jesus could have easily destroyed such an infant movement. For example, Matthew was a tax collector. A tax collector had been, had been employed by the Roman government. As a publican, Matthew was from a hated class of men. But the Lord said to him, follow me. Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. He said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. But then you combine Matthew with Simon, the zealot. What, are, what, what is that group of people? What's that class of people? And it means of the zealous set, they were haters. They hated the Romans. They especially hated Jews who sold out to the Romans by cooperating with them. And of the Jewish sects that we have all talked about, the zealots were the one that were most promoting the Messiah coming in, the conqueror, to take out the Romans. That was their grounding. But what does Jesus do? He calls them to be a part of this group. Luke 6, 15, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the zealot. So what we have just read, the life and story of Jesus, cannot be explained to work the way it did, to grow the way it did through our human reasoning. It can't. In many ways, it's just like that little mustard seed. It defies a lot of human logic to say that that becomes a upwards of 30-foot tree. But God's behind it. And with God, the establishment and the expansion of the kingdom of Christ cannot be held back. 
not by any man's efforts or desires. And it's actually, we see coming to fruition what God prophesied. Isaiah, Isaiah 2.2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Isaiah 11.9. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Would anything compare to the mountain that was forthcoming from beginnings that it would be hard even for the disciples to fully grasp and understand? I hope we now appreciate those first two compared we showed just a moment ago. That little mustard seed and how it became something so much bigger than human reasoning could ever contemplate. But did this actually ever happen? Well, for time's sake, we're not going to read every verse. We're going to do a quick summary. But watch. Let's watch and read together from the Word of God, and we're going to summarize this, and these slides will be available, and you can please go back and check them. The explosion that occurs. Could man keep it down from these beginnings that don't make sense from a human reasoning standpoint if we wanted to create a movement? No. Let's look. 3,000 souls were ushered into the kingdom of God, Acts 2. 41. And subsequently, day by day, others were added to that number. Acts 2, 47. Soon the number, the number of men was 5,000. Acts 4, 4. And believers were the, uh, were the more added to the Lord. Multitudes, both men and women. Acts 5, 14. The apostles were presently charged with having filled Jerusalem with the gospel, Acts 5, 28, so that the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem exceedingly with even a great company of priests obeying the faith, Acts 6, 7. Before long, the persecution came and the disciples were scattered abroad, but they went about preaching the word. And so the gospel went into Samaria where the great multitudes gave heed to its precepts, Acts 8, 4, and 5. In Acts 8, the saving word was dispatched to Ethiopia in Africa by means of the conversion of the eunuch. In Acts 9, in connections with Saul's conversion, we discover that Christianity had already been planted in Damascus, Syria. In Acts 16, the kingdom spreads into Europe and the Christian system burns like a fire out of control. Great multitudes are led to the truth, Acts 17, 4. And presently, the disciples are accused of having turned the world upside down, Acts 17, 6. And on they went. And Paul says, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all of the world. Do we see what happens after the crucifixion of Jesus? And how this mustard seed becomes this great tree? But additionally, in verse 32 we read, 
of Matthew 13. The birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Two passages I thought of as I reflect and think about the symbolism of this tiny mustard seed that if a bird ate, I can't believe would be very filled, then finds its rest from the sun and the trials under its branches. So Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. With this simple parable, Jesus offers encouragement to that small band of disciples following him all over the hills that they would be part of something that would grow and bless the world immensely. Many of which, similar to other people that we read about in the Bible, do not see the fruition of these labors of sowing. But I have no doubt as you see their confidence grow post the resurrection of Jesus, that they had all the faith in the world that it would happen, just like Abraham. What about today? The kingdom of heaven continues to grow and spread out its branches to all those who will accept it. Now I've dealt with the first of the two parables, very quickly we'll touch on the second. That's in Matthew 13, 30, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Now, just like a mustard seed, I haven't dealt much with leaven, but through the Mitchells and the Quins, I'm learning a little bit more about it. And I think we can all see the very similar message here. God was very forthright with his disciples. There was no question that many would not accept the call. He never, ever gave them the false sense that that would be the case. But he also encouraged his disciples and by such has encouraged us. If we do what God says, each of us, as members of the body of the kingdom of Christ to spreading the seed and sowing it, then we can have the same confidence. Whether we see the results or not, that's not for us. But the kingdom of Christ still stands today because faithful men and women throughout time have done and followed and had faith in the parable that we have just read and that we have studied and that we've looked more into. So even though there was humble beginnings, if you will, of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, it did, just like it was foretold through prophecies, it experienced explosive growth. And based on what we read in Revelation and many other passages, we know 
that there have been men and women that will continuously pick up the banter and be laborers in the kingdom of Christ and they will sow that seed. So the song of encouragement has been selected for us, um, selected for those who have heard the word tonight and realized their life is not right with God. And while there wasn't much this evening in our lesson about obeying the gospel, we need to be reminded the invitation that God has made available to all the world that would just listen and obey his word. We mentioned the Ethiopian eunuch very briefly tonight, and Acts 8, I think, is a good example of what God's invitation truly is. Obeying, obeying the gospel is not about being convinced or pleaded with emotionally to turn your life over to God. It comes from conviction that the word of God has called us individually to be transformed. Second, the invitation is always open once we realize what must be done. We live in a culture, a society of social media and convenience that is not what the Ethiopian eunuch taught us about responding. We learned from Acts 8 that there is in-depth instruction in teaching. And then the eunuch is able to understand that he is lost and that he needs, for, he needs God in his life. Then and only then does he immediately, without hesitation, he would be baptized. He didn't wait for his family to come from Africa to come back over and be a witness or a part of this event. He didn't delay his baptism because it just wasn't convenient when he had the conviction of realizing what was right or wrong. He acted immediately once he understood. So the invitation is always open. Don't wait or tarry. Whether it's to obey the gospel or to make wrong a sin, God has provided us the avenue to act immediately. And that should be our focus. That should be our mindset. If there's any reason you need to come forward, please come forward as we stand and sing the invitation song.